Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We're going to take a look at the bond market today. Focus on fixed income brought to you by PIMCO for investors who demand more than the markets deliver. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. Today is a great day to have Ira Jersey on the show. He is chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Ira, before we get to what you're expecting for the year ahead, uh, what we can expect later, uh, tomorrow with the FOMC meeting minutes, I want to talk about the action that we're seeing in the bond market today. We're seeing a pretty broad-based sell-off that seems to be stemming really from the uh, European bond market. What do you make of this? How much should people read into this action? It's hard always around holiday periods to read a lot into into things because um, there's people either putting on positions or taking off positions that um, to to be either risked properly for the year ahead. Um, I, I think it's real. I mean, it's real in in terms of the idea that um, you know people do think that the um, that yields are going to be somewhat higher, that the the, the tax uh, plan is going to help inflation and growth a little bit, and and you know at, at the same time, I think a lot of people were really worried that. You know the stock market was going to tank, and and uh, people going into year end wanted to be a little bit long rate risk just as a hedge to some other riskier assets. So um, support of this isn't a big surprise. I, I think you know we we do have some pretty important technical levels we're sitting right at for ten year yields. So uh, so you know a move up to past two fifty, for example, two and two and a half percent would be uh, uh, potentially mean that we could see last year's highs up at uh, around two sixty five. Would you agree that this is being driven, that today's sell-off in U.S. Treasuries is being driven, at least to some degree, uh, by what's going on in Europe? We had an ECB member, Benoit Couré, uh, say uh, overnight that he thinks that the ECB is going to stop buying bonds. They're not going to extend the bond purchase program yet again, as they did in October. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, that, that's been a, a risk hanging out there. The ECB has been a risk hanging out there for a while. Um, no, even after, if you go back to last June, about six months ago, when Mario Draghi suggested that the bond buying program could come to an end, you saw a pretty substantial sell-off in uh, in treasuries. Now, I think one of the questions is, is how sustainable will uh, that sell-off be? You know, is this going to be a taper tantrum? 
when the ECB recently cut their purchases of uh, of bond buying um, from uh, um, down to about 30 billion euros a month, um, then you didn't see a huge reaction to in, the, in the U.S. bond market. I'd also note that that the move today is is in real terms. So uh, what's happened is you look at real yields. So uh, you look at the tips market and you see how how yields and tips are selling off. It's not inflation expectations that have gone up a lot. Um, it's really in real space. So that leads you to believe that it's either some form of de-risking, whether it's because of the ECB or just um, uh, or, or just portfolio positioning for the rest of the year. It's something other than the expectation that inflation is going to run out of control. Ira, help me understand this. If we're having a big sell-off at the long end, we're down now one and seven thirty seconds for a yield of two point eight percent. And then I also told you that there were demonstrations in the streets of Iran, and that North Korea is looking as if it at least wants a dialogue with South Korea. Why aren't people buying? Yeah, well, I think having a dialogue in, in on the Korean Peninsula is probably a positive development in terms of reducing geopolitical risk. Well, but um, wait, 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 wait a uh, second. But the reason I mention that is because that's also being voiced in the context of the North Koreans trying to drive a wedge between South Korea and the United States. States. Yeah, that that that's fair. Um, yeah, you know, I think the the Treasury market in a lot of ways has been very technical uh, recently. Where um, you know the the reason why yields continue to be so low is because of large central bank balance sheets. It's because the uh, of the economic situation in the U.S. So I think what you need to change to see a, a large rally in, in treasuries would be something like a risk-off event. And um, so I think in, in many respects, um, today's move is is going to be more in line with the idea that the equity market is up. You have, um, even though there's, there's uh, you know, local and regional tensions in some places uh, to make that a, a globally uh, systemic event and therefore a big risk off event would take something much larger than what's going on um, in the world today. And I, I think the stuff in the Korean Peninsula, you know, there was some volatility when some of those headlines first came out. But quite frankly, I think a lot of investors are a little bit numb to the headlines coming out of the Korean Peninsula at this point. Well, Ira, would you count yourself uh, among those who are numb simply also because you're recommending that people in the U.S. go buy Japanese bonds, which arguably <laughs> could uh, could be impacted? Well, not uh, so. So I, I think it's more of an interesting. Um, it, it's a very interesting phenomenon that has that has been occurring in the post-crisis period, where you know a lot of people show the difference in yields between the U.S. and either Germany or Japan, and just say, look, how could U.S. yields be so high? How could corporate bond yields for you know uh, for mid-rated corporate bonds be lower than that of treasuries and other jurisdictions. But I think you have to put that into context of two things. Is one, what's the risk-free rate within those individual jurisdictions and in those currencies? And secondly, if you do all of the currency hedging that you need to do and you and you uh, asset swap back Japanese debt into U.S. dollars, what you end up uh, what you end up finding is that Japanese yields are actually higher after you do all the currency hedging that you need to do. So um, you know, it's not something that an individual investor can really take advantage of, but large institutional investors do these kinds of trades all the time where they'll buy a, a, a Japanese government bond or, or Japanese T-bill and then hedge that back into dollars and actually make 30, 40, 50 basis points more than the comparable U.S. instrument. And I think that that's something that gets missed a lot of times just looking at you know Japanese yields being at zero and U.S. yields being at 2.5%. 
Thanks very much, Ira Jersey. Much appreciated. Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Right now, let us take a look at what we should be focusing on in 2018. Bruce Biddles joins us now. He's chief investment strategist at Baird, based in Sarasota, Florida, where it is a lot warmer than it is here in New York City. Uh, Bruce, congratulations for picking the right place to be right now. Um, so I want to get your sense on what we can expect this year. And, and I want to start with your perception of 2017. What did you get most wrong? And then what are you most confident about coming into 2018? Yeah, well, that, I, I, I think what we got most wrong was the uh, was the, the strength of the, of the rally. I mean, we came into the year believing that um, the change in administrations um, in November of two, 2016 was bullish for the market because we had a business-friendly administration coming into power. And we felt that that was going to be a bullish influence on the markets all year. But we didn't expect the uh, S&P 500 or the Dow to rally as much as they did. But certainly we had the direction correct. All right. If you had the direction correct, I'm wondering if you could just ask uh, answer this question about the direction of uh, the tax overhaul bill and what that'll do to stocks. Will will we see increased buybacks, increased dividends? Will we see stocks move higher because of this repatriation of, of money? I think the tax legislation that passed um, in late December is certainly going to help the economy. And if that helps the economy as expected, um, it's certainly going to produce stronger top-line growth, and that should lead to stronger uh, profit growth. Now, we expect profits to grow about 12 to 13 percent in 2018. Now, historically, if profits rise 11 percent year over year, the stock market typically responds with a very strong upward bias. Now, the risk to the, that environment or that strategy would be if the economy didn't respond as expected. But I believe you'll see a mixture when the money comes back to the U.S. Uh, you'll see some stock buybacks, some increases in dividends, but you'll also see an increase in capital spending. And um, that, that, I believe, is going to be a very bullish element for the market in 2018. So if you think that the uh, U.S. stock markets are going to do pretty well, does that mean that you're pretty bearish on bonds? No, we're not really bearish on bonds. We think interest rates are likely to go somewhat higher now. Um, short rates, of course, are going up, but the yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury note uh, finished the year about where it started, yielding about 2.4%. I think it can go up to about 2.775% perhaps before the markets would be negatively impacted, maybe even 3% on the 10-year. But I, I don't see the inflationary pressures building the way some folks do. Now, yes, um, the, the economy now has filled the output gap. That's something to watch closely. And, of course, we're very close to full employment, which we should, we should certainly start to see some wage gains. But I think this is a very early cycle in inflation, and I don't think it's going to rise to the levels that, that could upset the bond market or the stock market. We think inflation will probably be in the area of 2.4% in terms of CPI for 2018. 
Bruce Spittles, is there a way you can describe for us uh, the wall of worry? What What is it and, and why? Maybe you don't believe it, but maybe you could describe why do people believe that it is an effective uh, analogy? Well, I, I think the, the wall of worry is certainly um, something that helped the stock market not only last year, but throughout the bullish cycle that began in 2009. I think the fact that the Federal Reserve Board was responsible for so much of the liquidity that was that was forced into the markets made people a little unsettled, and that and the markets rallying every time new, a new QE program was announced back in 2009, back in 11, back in 12. I think folks were worried that once the Fed um, pulled back from that policy, that the markets would will lose that support and, and, and collapse, but certainly that has not been the case. Now, I think the fact that Trump won the election in 2016 was another element. Um, a lot of folks felt that he would be disruptive and the markets would do poorly. And yes, the rhetoric out of Washington all year in 2017 was argumentative, but uh, I think that really helped the market. It, it kept people uh, from becoming... Um, excessively optimistic. We don't see any sign of euphoria, really, except if you look at bitcoins, for instance. But in the stock market, we don't see it. Now, there's optimism. There's no question. But we don't see the type of optimism we saw back in 2000, for instance, when everyone was bullish, including the Fed, on the fact that the business cycle would probably be repealed because of the new technologies. That's that's not the case here. Um, yes, there's some excitement, but if you if you go through the financial journals over the weekend like I did, very, very hard to find a real bullish case expressed by anyone. Bruce, I want to go through some of the sector calls that you had in your latest note. I thought it was interesting. Uh, one of the biggest upgrades was consumer discretionary companies that you had within the U.S. stock universe, and that's in, you know including home building and footwear, casinos and gaming. And this is up from uh, where you had placed this sector as far as performance uh, heading into 2017. Why mm -hmm. do you think the consumer's discretionary stocks are going to do better this year? I think there's, there's two reasons. First of all, um, the the retail companies uh, uh, benefit a great deal from the tax legislation. They typically have paid the full boat when it came time for, for to pay their taxes, and I think they'll get a big big break because of the new legislation. The second part of that equation is that the consumer is also going to get a break, and they're going to be um, they're going to find more discretionary income in their pockets in 2018. So you have that dual effect for consumer discretionary stocks. They'll benefit from the tax legislation themselves, and they'll benefit from the consumer um, having more disposable income as a result of the new tax package. Bruce Spittles, you mentioned Bitcoin, and I'd be remiss if I didn't get your thoughts on it. Well, actually, um, I'm, I'm an agnostic on Bitcoin. I'm not sure what it really means. A lot of folks believe it's just a, a bubble that's going to burst and going to hurt everything, and I, I don't think that's particularly true. Certainly, the speculation there is, is, is exorbitant, something we've never seen before. 
But nevertheless, it's not in any way or shape or fashion the size of the speculation we saw back in 1999 in Internet stocks. So even if Bitcoin ex- ex- exploded and, and imploded, I mean, uh, I don't think it would affect anything at all. So whether there's a future there or not, I have no idea. But my guess is that we'll start. We'll probably see lower prices for Bitcoin before we see higher. Well, I want to thank you very much. Bruce Biddles is the chief investment strategist for Baird & Company, uh, joining us uh, from Sarasota, Florida, talking about uh, his outlook for what's going on in uh, stocks and also in the bond market. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We wish Jamie Butters, our U.S. auto reporter, a happy 2018. Good to have you with us, Jamie. Uh, Your story today has to do with... uh, car loans. And I'm wondering if you could just put this whole idea of car loans in the context of the rebates and the offers that are being made. You can't help but see a television commercial for an automobile maker. I was looking at one Chevrolet, I believe, extending their employee discount to anyone that comes in. If you're offering like, you know, $4,500 off, this can't be a great market or am I missing something? Well, um, it's it's not a it's not a perfect market, but it's still a pretty pretty darn good market. Uh, and you're not you're not missing anything. But it's that time of year where uh, you get some sales, right? People are trying to clear out their old inventory. If you have you know 2017 models still out on dealer lots, uh, you know maybe you mistimed something or somebody else uh, ran some discounts and, and left you with too much inventory. You just got to get rid of those, right? Because if you're selling, even if it's never been driven. If you're selling a 2017 in calendar year 2018, uh, you're going to have to give that car away. Right. <laughs> well, well, so, but, so they're discounting heavily in, in December, and, and that, that helps out. Okay, so so they're discounting heavily, but it isn't that bad. It's still pretty good. Uh, that said, uh, definitely sales are slowing. There was the first annual sales decline uh, in the U.S. of automobiles since 2009, and uh, you spoke to some analysts who widely think that this year will be more of the same. Why? Yeah, we're so it's revert, we're reverting to the mean. Basically, they, they, the, the view is that probably normal, you know, normal demand in the U.S. might be 16 and a half million new cars and light trucks each year. Uh, we were well below that in the 2009, 2010. So we had some pent up demand. So we kind of overswung and we got to you know 17 and a half, 17.6, and now we're coming back, you know, probably 17.2 for 2017. 
maybe another half million down next year, maybe not quite that much. We'll see. Uh, and so it's sort of getting its way back. And, and, and there's a lot of optimism, you know, for those of us who've been uh, watching these guys for so long. I mean, uh, in the, that they're allowing sales to actually decline a little bit um, is a is surprise. It's the kind of thing that they weren't doing before. For for so many years, it was so much about scale, and there was uh, you know the the ethos, the mindset of the industry was you had to be bigger, bigger, bigger. And you know GM with its bankruptcy really taught us, you know you you can't always do that. Well, <laughs> that, well, that isn't always the way. And and so now they're leaner, and they can they can afford to be a little smarter. Okay, so Jamie, you're painting a pretty rosy picture that the decline in sales uh, is at least in part by design and that the automakers are allowing this to happen. But on the flip side, you are uh, seeing the expectation of rising rates this year. We already have seen overnight rates rise uh, this year, last year rather. Um, I'm just struggling with pairing that and the idea that that, that credit is less available uh, in some ways or will become less available. And is this something that they're going to be kind of, they're forced to make it sound rosy? Yeah, well, we do have to keep, an eye on incentives next year because, you know, so, you know, with volume above 16 and a half, everybody should be making lots of money, even if they're discounting their vehicles a bit. But in a, in a tightening market, you get executives whose, you know, compensation is geared around market share, maintaining market share, even gaining market share and trying to do that in a tight market, things could get messy. And you, we could start to see, I mean, we got to keep our eye on uh, all the companies that, that, that have leaned on incentives in the past and gotten themselves in trouble, whether that's, you know, GM, you know, has their employee pricing now, you know, if they can't, turn that off at the end of, if they didn't turn that off at the end of December, like usual, that could be a problem. Chrysler's one in the past has been a problem. Uh, they've really over relied. Obviously, we want to keep an eye on Nissan and, and Hyundai and some others because uh, things could get could get messy. But in theory, <laughs> they all see it coming and they're and they're going to manage for it and, and not, uh, you know, shoot themselves in the foot. Jamie Butters, we'll thank, you, yeah, yeah. Jamie, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and a happy new year to you. Jamie Butters is U.S. Autos reporter for Bloomberg News coming to us uh, from our Detroit bureau. And this is sort of a big question, uh, Pim, that I have, frankly, which is as you get rising rates, a lot of the uh, loans that are extended to people for cars are floating rate. They're going to be some of the most affected. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens here. Yesterday, Californians were lining up to buy recreational marijuana legally for the first time as a new law went into effect. What the implications of this law are, perhaps Chris Levy is best positioned to tell us. He is co-chairman and partner of MedMen, which is based in Los Angeles and is devoted to uh, helping with the infrastructure uh, behind growing marijuana legally. Uh, And he joins us now. Chris, uh, first... Did I describe MedMen correctly? And second of all, how significant are the implications of this new law that goes into effect in California? Well, the implications for the new laws are very significant. Um, if we look at 2016, the market size in California for legal marijuana was a little over $2 billion, $2 billion, And we think the market potential with adult use legalization uh, is up to $7 billion. 
Chris, more than a threefold increase. Uh, uh, Chris, about what? Forty-five, as, as much as forty-five percent of the cost of legal cannabis are taxes. Correct. A significant portion. Um, yeah, significant portion. Um, not necessarily the forty-five percent number, uh, but yeah, significant portion are taxes. There's no doubt about it. Um, that's obviously part of what makes this a uh, win-win. Um, you know, for both uh, consumers and governments. Okay, so that's where I was going with this, is that the local governments, they are satisfied with this because why? They can, of course, make a lot of money. We've noted that Massachusetts is going to be selling retail marijuana. That starts July 1st. Maine has approved it. Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, Nevada. Will this tip the federal government into allowing marijuana businesses to access the legal financial industry? Well, the marijuana business um, can already access the financial industry. The Department of Treasury um, approved guidelines in 2014 around uh, banking in uh, legal cannabis, and there's now over 300 financial institutions that engage um, in some form of banking in the marijuana industry. But to your bigger question, um, I do think that this um, that there was a real watershed uh, with the election in November of 2016. And when you look at the trend towards legalization at the state level, I do think it's inevitable that at the federal level uh, we will see policy continue to, uh, to loosen up, and eventually we believe we will see uh, full legalization at the federal level. Chris, uh, you previously oversaw $115 billion of fundamental equities at BlackRock. Investing in the marijuana industry uh, seems pretty far removed from that world. And I'm wondering, do your former colleagues still kind of look at what you do as sort of, you know, eyebrows raised and saying, oh, yeah, you're investing in marijuana. Did you try some or whatever else joke you can insert there? Um, Has it started to be treated differently now? Uh, Yeah, and I would say that that shift happened um, a little while back. Um, And remember that I work in a community of investors, and investors are all about the business and is this a good industry or not. And when you look at the business characteristics of uh, the marijuana industry, uh, they're very very compelling, and um, most of my colleagues uh, from Wall Street get that. Well, will it be as compelling while it's made even more legal and accessible, isn't part of the popularity that it is not legal and accessible to everyone? Well, no, from a demand perspective, um, and, and I should note that we we support full legalization, and we support f- full legalization at the federal level because we think it makes both um, it makes sense for society and also makes sense for business. And uh, no, I think as we open up the market, um, that's going to create more and more opportunities for for the players, especially for the players who have scale. And given the uh, scale that we have, um, we think we're positioned to benefit from all that. Well, having said that, will the industry then also take legal responsibility for any th- potential problems that happen as a result of the consumption of legal cannabis? I mean, I think, for example, of liquor establishments and, you know, if you drive after having a drink, you're going to be legally responsible for what happens. Yeah, I mean, we'll leave that up to um, the regulators um, and uh, to determine that on a 
city-by-city basis. Uh, but what I will say is when you look at the, the facts around cannabis, um, you know, this is something that if used responsibly yeah. um, is really similar and in some metrics safer uh, than alcohol. You know, if we look to uh, Colorado, for instance, um, you know, DUI-related incidences are, uh, are down. Chris, uh, just real quick, uh, what have returns been like, say, for last year uh, in marijuana-related investments? Uh, come again with the question? What were returns like uh, last year for marijuana-related investments? Well, there, there really is not much of a uh, public stock market um, in the U.S., uh, the point two. Right. Um, if we look north of the border in Canada, um, you know, the returns were, were, were off the charts. Uh, those stocks did extremely well. All right, we gotta we gotta we gotta run. We want to thank you very much. Uh, Chris Levy is the co-chairman and the partner at MedMen, uh, talking about investing in legal cannabis that began yesterday in California, and uh, we'll be uh, updating you on results from uh, those continued sales. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PNL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.